I'm really excited to finally kick off Inside Infrastructure for 2021. We have a new season, a new logo and a new co-host this year. Janice, I'm so glad to be sharing the microphone with you. We've known each other for a number of years, but maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hey, Adrian. So thank you. I'm excited to join you on this podcast. A little bit about myself. So I've just recently joined PwC's Integrated Infrastructure team. I'm a, a partner in infrastructure strategy and analytics. My background's really in government, economic policy and infrastructure strategy. I um, am known variously for holding certain roles. I worked, you know, in New South Wales government in um, what was you know, the Department of Premier and Cabinet. I worked on the Hill uh, with the Infrastructure Minister and Treasurer. And since then, I've worked in consulting. So I've held various roles at EY and also led the government practice at LEK Consulting. But it's been, you know, really a, a career spent working in and out of really important public policy and economic policy issues. So you're a bona fide infrastructure nerd. <laughs> yes. And I think with this uh, podcast, I am now officially inaugurated into serious infrastructure nerdery. It's great news because it is a requirement for being a co-host. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> even though we've been upgrading a lot this year and um, we're still going to have the same great content um, and the same nerdery, as I said, around infrastructure and, of course, a deep dive into the background of some leading industry figures. Janice, who have we got? So we certainly have some exciting guests coming up. Graham Newton is our first. We had a great chat, covered various things. And uh, without further ado, let's dive into the episode. So welcome to season two of Inside Infrastructure. And Graham Newton, the CEO of the Cross River Rail Delivery Authority, has kindly agreed to be our first guest. Um, welcome to Inside Infrastructure, Graham. Great to be here, Adrian. Thanks. We're, of course, up in Brisbane and around the country. See, you're a CEO in the infrastructure space. Lots of people will know you. I think it's something like 15, 16 years as a CEO across various different parts of the infrastructure sector. Um, but those uh, casual listeners maybe don't know who you are and don't know that background. Maybe you could just take us through a bit of um, who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. Um, yeah, look, it's uh, it's been an interesting little journey. I guess um, I was uh, heavily involved uh, at the front end with the um, Coordinator General's Department and in Queensland that sort of is often embedded into the infrastructure department. But then off uh, that experience fairly early in my career, I got involved in um, the project delivery side on, uh, on government client side uh, and that... Um, led me down the path of being involved in some major water infrastructure project delivery. Uh, I was involved in some energy related stuff um, and then some more water related uh, projects and then um, uh, the disaster reconstruction after the 2011 floods. Um, but but uh, along that way, I actually got appointed as coordinator general and uh, was running the infrastructure department for, for a short period. Um, but then when the floods came along, I was asked to set up the reconstruction authority. Um, had a, had a three-year period with Deloitte, um, leading the uh, the public sector arm for the Queensland government, and then uh, was asked to um, uh, be involved in Cross River Rail, and that's what I've been doing for the last four years. So, so what, what do mostly, you um, what do you self-identify as? You're a project guy, uh, or <laughs> well, probably very much a project, but um, but on the owner side, and uh, large um, public infrastructure seems to be the the way. Um, the Cross River Rail Delivery Authority is the fourth um, organisation like this, either an SPV or a statutory authority that I've um, been uh, head of. And 
Um, I kind of like that space between um, government and the private sector and um, and delivering that project. So I, I, I like the space um, where I'm not in the middle of a department, I'm really on the edge of government, but really doing most of my heavy interfaces with the private sector. And often in this project type organisation, most of your employees are coming from a um, private sector background or, or have had a pretty strong uh, infrastructure experience. So as your first transport project, how have you found it changing sectors or is it really quite the same as what you've done in, in some of the big water projects, you know, around storage and dams and whatnot? Yeah, look, it's it's similar and, and different. Um, it's mm-hmm. And that's a really good question because early on people would say, you know, this, um, there's three ways, you know, there's the right way, the wrong way and the wrong way. The ability to move between infrastructure sectors I've quite enjoyed because it's really challenging to move and understand the different problems that you're looking to solve. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, you're implementing government policy. They're large-scale projects. The procurement um, has a lot of similarities to it. But then when you get into the specialist details, that's when you really need those specialist advisors on your team who can help um, help t- take the project and guide it through on its delivery. Yeah. Graham, I don't know if this is by design, but there is scant information available on the internet about your career before the CEO. So, do, are you an engineer? What did you study? How did you get? How did you go from? You grew up in Brisbane, right? Yeah, I, I moved to Brisbane when I was um, in year seven. Um, so I actually lived on a farm in country Victoria prior to that, and then. Um, then came to Brisbane, studied uh, here, and then got, became uh, a convert to um, to the Mar- the Maroon side of things. Um, Sorry, just to be uh, clear, but- did you expunge that history because you don't want people to know you're Victorian? <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm quite happy to admit that I'm a Richmond supporter, um, more so in recent years than the last the prior 37 years. <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, so no, def- definitely that. But I did um, I did a surveying degree originally, and then I did a um, master's in project management um, off the top of that as well. And then obviously the the various um, uh, company directors and so forth courses after that. So, uh, but yeah, heavily been involved in in the infrastructure and project delivery side of things. So I guess that's what I relate to is uh, is very much the, the project and program delivery. Entirely outside of the career. So being in um, Brisbane from a kind of year seven would be, what's that, about sort of 12 years old, 11, 12 years old? Yeah. Is that right? Um, I imagine it's changed a fair bit in, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to age you, but there is a reasonable amount of elapsed time yeah. between 12 year old Graham and now. Yeah, so that, that was, um, you know, if, if you think about it in the context of the current project, I mean, we moved here in 1980 um, and the first uh, electric trains in Brisbane were 1979. Um, so it's really, um, you know, that, that sort of was a transformation in, in Brisbane. I mean, the Merivale Bridge was, was built in 1979 as well too. So that was the first um, rail crossing of the river uh, as well. But what, what, what we've sort of seen is the... Um, the, the connectedness that you know there's always been a north side south side the brisbane river is quite a large river and it's quite a barrier um in the city and uh and there hasn't been a lot of connection between both sides of the river but we're seeing that with pedestrian bridges with south bank um obviously cross river rail will contribute to that um, but also the council are looking at putting in um green bridges as well too so i think there's this recognition that the city um, will benefit from this greater connectedness. And that's what I guess I've started to see in the last 10 years. In seeing that the development of the rail network in Brisbane is somewhat um, 
symbolic of the development of the city. How does it feel then to be working on the Cross River Rail project? What does it mean for the further development or the next stage of development of Mm. Brisbane as a city? Yeah, I I think it's quite significant. In in Brisbane, um, the Central Station and Roma Street Station aren't actually in in the CBD. They're on the edge of the CBD. And because Mm. the Brisbane CBD is on a peninsula, um, you know, on the bend of a river and there really isn't a railway station in the middle of the city. I guess the um, comparison I'd give for people in um, Sydney would be imagine Central Station in Sydney was the closest station to the CBD of Sydney. Um, You know, you've still got a 10 to 15 minute walk from Central Station in Brisbane to get into the various parts of the city. So Cross River Rail putting a a railway station right in the dead centre of the CBD will just basically change the way in which people will look to travel. People actually get off in South Brisbane uh, and walk across the bridge because it's closer than staying on the train and getting off at Roma Street or Central Station to get to their destination. So I I think it will change uh, the way the city is shaped. Yeah. And one of the things that is interesting about that project, and I wonder if you could elaborate on it for listeners who might not be as familiar with Brisbane, is that it serves a really important CBD function, but it serves a much wider purpose, doesn't it, really, around supporting growth outside of Brisbane, so in that wider metropolitan area? Yeah, it's a a really good point because while the work's happening in the inner core of the CBD, um, most of the beneficiaries are actually on the fringe because Mm. like like a lot of cities, the the urban growth is on the fringe. So um, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, Ipswich, and all of those infill suburbs uh, in between is really where we're going to see about 80% of the population growth um, over the next period of time. Um, you know, COVID was sort of always the question mark, was that going to um, create a hit for southeast Queensland? It's actually quite the opposite. We're seeing greater numbers of people. And I think the last I saw was a report saying there's 900 people per week moving to southeast Queensland now. So um, the forecasts around population growth, you know, three and a half million um, by 2040, I think it is, is um, for the greater southeast is, is really looking pretty likely. Graham, I'm going to come back to Cross River Rail later, but I wanted to cast a little bit further back in your career because I think it is instructive about some of the things you're doing now. Um, the, the Queensland Reconstruction Authority following um, the floods in 2011, um, you were the CEO, you stood up that authority, you did the, the bulk of its work at the um, in the recovery of that disaster, but it, it's subsequently been used for other purposes. Maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about the the genesis of the Reconstruction Authority, why it was needed as an authority, and then the, the sort of some of that experience of, of um, reconstruction in a post-disaster environment. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, people may recall we had the, the floods um, in the early part of, um, or sort of, I suppose the latter part of 2010, early 2011. Um, Brisbane flooded on the 10th of um, January, uh, you know, 2011. And then Cyclone Yasi came through on the 3rd of February um, 2011. So the state got hit pretty significantly and uh, the government decided that um, really they needed a dedicated uh, entity to drive the, the reconstruction. The initial estimate at the front end was about $7.5 billion worth of damage. Uh, we had subsequent floods in 2012 and 2013, which bumped the, the estimate up to about $12 billion. Well, what was that damage to? 
Primarily to infrastructure. So it's public infrastructure is what that cost is attributable to. The um, the private infrastructure such as housing and so forth was another damage bill altogether, but that was largely covered by the insurance yeah. sector and, and businesses. Um, the number I talk about there is, is damage to public infrastructure. So mostly it's roads. About 80% of it was roads, bridges, um, uh, culverts, those sorts of things. Wherever water inter- intersects with a, with a road, you get damage. Um, and then uh, there were things like schools and um, public buildings, you know, hospitals and things like that. Anything that got um, flood damage or, or cyclone damage um, needed to be repaired. So we were running the program. There were 70, 79 local governments um, that were affected. The whole state was, was impacted. Uh, we had 19 government departments that were, were part of it um, and obviously transport and main roads you know, on the main roads network. And we had things like um, Cunningham Gap Road was basically slipping off the side of the, the hill as was the Diagula Range. So those were sort of really expensive tasks that needed from some pretty significant work. So the government setting up the, um, the Reconstruction Authority was really trying to bring it under one roof uh, and make it um, focused with this, this single mind around getting the state back uh, and rebuilt as quickly as possible. Now, the, the time frame was quite limited. The funding um, in the first instance for 2011 was three years and then 2012 was two years. So we had to really get things going. And it was about doing a massive... Uh, program working with local governments and government agencies to get that program of works happening and then coordinate it. And I, I'd have to say it was one of the most rewarding jobs I did because you really felt like you were part of uh, getting the state back uh, onto its feet and, and getting uh, revitalised and re-energised and getting that confidence uh, back that, that um, businesses could could go and grow their cattle crops or their banana crops or uh, have a confidence around a, a tourism um, uh, enterprise or something like that where they might have been wiped out because of a cyclone. So it was, it was, a, it was a pretty um, pretty interesting time, but yeah, very, uh, very challenging at the time, I can tell you. How did you find the pressure of having to manage the rebuild task? And what did you think Australia learned out of that? Uh, you know, insofar as rebuilding, redesigning, relocating infrastructure. Yeah, it, it was. Um, there was a lot of pressure. I remember. Uh, I don't think I actually took a day off for the first six months. To be honest, it was. Mm. Um, it was literally that long, and uh, and neither did the team. You know, everybody really got into it and got focused because there was that greater good that we were we were looking to try and achieve. Um, and if we didn't do it, um, it wasn't going to happen. So we had to come together. The thing that was really evident out of it, though, I saw all three levels of government just pulled together. It's you know, it's one of those moments um, uh, where where you see um, for for this united focus, you can see government um, perform. We saw you know at the early stages of COVID as well too. I think we're starting to see um, you know some indications in relation to this Olympic bid as well. Where when when three levels of government get aligned and get focused, um, gee, there's some amazing things can happen. So the Reconstruction Authority is um, is still going, 10 years strong now. Um, Queensland has got this sort of knowledge base. They've moved very much to data-led approach. One thing we started was damage tracking so that we could track where damage occurred and where repeat damage occurred. And then that leads to things like a new policy that um, I was involved in, which was around betterment, um, which was essentially building things back better than they were before. 
because the previous policy was one of just replacing like with like because federal government didn't want um, states being, um, you know, gouging as far as funding goes. But in a lot of places where you had repeat damage, if you built it slightly better, you actually make saving in the long run. And, and I'm really pleased to see that policy has really stuck and, and carried through. And, and all credit to Brenda Moon, who's the CEO now, who's carried that forward and, and implemented it. And, and like I said, the data-driven approach just leaves it to no doubt that, the, that it's being successful. Um, you kind of hinted it in one of your answers there about um, pandemic response and the Olympics and, and a thing for different levels of government to coalesce around. If I can just unpick part of that, um, and I'm asking you to go outside of your, your tracks a bit here, but to, to what extent do you think the success of Australia's and Queensland's response from a health perspective to the pandemic is reflective of the idea that we do deal with natural disasters on a relatively regular basis, that we've got the systems and people in place, those kind of organisations where we we respond to data, we respond to evidence and experts. Do you, do you think there is a link between those two things? I, I think I think there, there, there certainly is in, uh, I mean, I saw it particularly at the front end in Queensland. I mean, Jeanette Young, I worked very closely with her in the disaster space because she'd always look after, she was always, you know, obviously chief health officer. And I remember when we had the cyclone Yasi coming up um, in uh, in North Queensland, she was heavily involved in the evacuation of the Cairns Hospital. Um, so there, there's this sort of notion of um, needing to make decisions um, that, that need to be made in a timely way. Uh, and not being afraid to just get on with it and then make a decision and then make it the right decision. Um, I think that that's it. The, the difference, I suppose, with this pandemic is it's actually gone on longer than any natural disaster. I mean, often a natural disaster will take, you know, a, a couple of weeks to come through. In, in our case in Queensland, which was unusual in 2011, is it actually went on for about four or five months, which was quite a long period. And you started to see fatigue creep in. Uh, but I do, back to your, your question, I do think... The exposure to natural disasters, the exposure to vast distances, and the need to communicate um, to people, and not just um, you know tap people on the head and say, "Look, don't worry, she'll be right. Just follow what I tell you to do." There's an acknowledgement there that people need to be informed and need to be taken with you, and um, and and given context, and then uh, then the community will swing in behind if they understand, and and they're not treated like fools. And what about the recovery piece? Because you, I mean, in that in the circumstance of the disaster recovery and rebuild, it's about replacing infrastructure that's damaged or lost. But what yeah. we've seen during the pandemic, the Queensland government's infrastructure spend, there was a 10% increase in response to mm. the pandemic, a view of bringing forward projects. Do you think any of those mm. learnings from that, that kind of fast response rebuild can be applied to stimulating the economy mm. quickly and efficiently? Yeah, I, look, I think it, it does come back to, and what I was talking about before, things like um, you know the, the physical reconnection of um, you know transport or economic corridors um, was always our priority. Getting power, water, sewer, roads, um, rail back up going because you know the quickest way for people to um, to respond to a disaster is to be given, um, I suppose, uh, autonomy, given the ability to operate themselves, not rely on on government to do the handouts of water or you know, petrol or shelter and things like that. People want to want to lean forward. I think the same thing applies in this environment where if you can give people the knowledge and the insight, then they can actually respond uh, effectively to it. And um, uh, it's it's different, but it's it's similar. It's a similar mindset of, you know, inform people, 
keep them keep them informed and keep them informed and keep them informed uh, and then they'll, they'll come along the journey with you. Did you find when you were heading the authority that as a leader it was a unique project in terms of the level of agency you had? Mm. So, so you, you were talking about the different levels of government being aligned and having that consensus. Did it free you up to just make very clear and plain recommendations mm. about what was needed? Yeah, it would, uh, the the Premier, um, Anna Bly at the time, she basically got rid of all of her portfolios and just took on reconstruction. Mm. Um, so I had a direct line of sight to her. There was um, there was a, a steering group that was set up which uh, involved a representative from the federal government. Um, so Joe Ludwig was the lead and the representative in that. And so what it meant is you had a pretty short line of communication to be able to get feed through and get decisions made. Um, you know, that's a unique circumstance. And I'd have to say, I mean, for six months, it was um, seamless. And the answer to every question was always, yes, I need someone with this experience. I need this resource. I need that. And the answer was always, yes. There was still a real desire to, to see the state um, recover. And there was still a real desire to, um, to you know, give us the resources that we needed to get it done. And, and it, was, that's what I, it was extremely rewarding in that regard where, you know, people were just actively wanting to try and fix um, problems. They weren't putting, putting you know, sticks in the spokes, so to speak. I might take us back to, to Cross River Rail because we've, we've briefly spoken about the project and what mm. it does for SEQ, but it, it does have a, an interesting history as a project. There have been a number of iterations mm. over time. Maybe you could just talk us through the evolution of the ideas and, and mm. where we are today and yeah. what, what specifically the project that you're delivering, what problem does it solve? Yeah. So look, um, Cross River Rail, I, I think, uh, from my research, it sort of goes back around about 2007, I think it was talked about in some kind of form. Um, in 2010, actually, when I was the Coordinator General and, and Director General of the Infrastructure Department, we actually recommended it up as um, Queensland's number one infrastructure project. So sort of as far back as that. At that stage, it was a longer tunnel. It, it um, was almost twice the length that it is now. Um, and uh, and you know it had it has slightly different configuration, but largely the alignment through the city was the same. Um, in 2012, when there was a change of government, the Newman government suggested an alternative project, which they called the Bat Tunnel, which basically was a bus and train tunnel. It took a different alignment along George Street, but its um, its portal was more its southern portal was similar to um, ours now, a bit further south, but it was similar. Um, but then when the uh, Palaszczuk government was re-elected, they moved more back to the original um, alignment. So to come to your, your question about what's the problem that it's, it's solving, it really is that choke point in the, um, in the CBD. Um, all the trains in Brisbane um, have to go through Roma Street Central and um, the Valley, but more so the ones coming from the south have to go across the Merivale Bridge, and that's the only crossing there. It has a capacity of 24 trains per hour, and the forecast started saying, well, in the, in the near future, um, that's going to be reaching capacity. Now, obviously, COVID has, has had a bit of a, uh, an influence on that, but the reality is if you want to have that frequent service, you're going to run out of capacity pretty quickly. So not only does the current um, alignment not put you in the middle of the CBD and, and drop people off where they want to get off, but also uh, you've got a capacity constraint in the core. So by putting Cross River Rail through, it's essentially a um, you know a six-kilometre tunnel that goes in uh, you know just south of the city around uh, the Dutton Park area near the PA Hospital. 
it goes below ground past the Woolloongabba um, uh, cricket ground and um, puts a railway station at the, the Gabba, which anybody who's ever tried to get to the Gabba for any event uh, would know that that's desperately needed. Um, it's a horrible place to get to um, with public transport. It's just really difficult. Uh, it goes under the river and then has a station at Albert Street and then has a, has, um, a, a, a station at Roma Street, which is really going to become the, the biggest interchange of all forms of transport. So all buses, um, the, the proposed Brisbane Metro goes through there, um, interstate coaches go through there, interstate rail and um, rural rail for Brisbane go through there and all the uh, suburban rail go through Roma Street. So it'll become really, we, we refer to it as the Grand Central Station where basically if you want to do an interchange, that's the place to go. Uh, airport rail goes through there as well. And then we're also doing station upgrades um, on the Southern Corridor where we've got a lot of um, the sort of the older inner core stations, which were built, some of them back uh, in the late um, 1800s, um, have still got the timber stairs. Uh, there's no lifts, there, so they're not DDA compliant. So we're basically up, upgrading six of those stations um, to get that uh, uh, compliance. And then on top of that, we're building three new railway stations at the Gold Coast. So there, there's plenty to do. Um, I, and I haven't even mentioned the signalling. So I don't want to pick, there was a mistake in what you said, Graham. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but you referred, <laughs> you referred to the Gabba as a cricket ground. And following this week's announcement, it will be a multi-purpose Olympic ready stadium not just a cricket ground i think you've underplayed what the gabba is i i, I don't want to preempt the ioc decision I, t- I said olympic ready not not olympic olympic ready olympic ready yeah no look absolutely that's um that I, I think and that was that's the big push um i think is is with the new thinking from the ioc is is around um how do we use existing infrastructure how do you use the olympics as a way to really allow cities to reinvigorate. I mean, the notion, and Sydney's been through this, the notion of spending money on um, a stadium is a bit of a fraught issue. Um, and the Gabba has needed an upgrade um, for a while. It's a great facility. I love the Gabba, but it's been incrementally upgraded over time. And it's, it's probably time it needed one big facelift. And this uh, Olympics gives it a massive excuse to, to do that big facelift and get the whole thing um, uh, back to modern day standards. So it, yeah, great opportunity. But you've, um, you've traced for us what the project does, but there are some complexities in it. Um, one thinks about the integration of existing rail lines mm. with a, a new connection that sits in the middle. There's some um, uh, some similarities there with a, a famous project in London, the Crossrail project, which um, those listeners that are familiar with it will know that that was um, took a long time in its genesis. Um, the construction delivery was very strong, but the integration with the existing rail line has been fraught mm. with with challenges. Yeah. Um, to what extent are those similarities? with Cross River Rail true and uh, and what can you learn from projects like that one to make sure that we avoid that sort of sticky yeah. part at the end when it comes to operational readiness? Yeah. Yeah, look, um, we've been sort of watching Cross Rail, but we've also been working pretty closely with um, Sydney and Melbourne Metro and having regular dialogues with those guys um, and also our um, compatriots in Perth as well, but um, more so Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne's quite similar to us in the respect that it's an integration or an augmentation of an existing rail network. Um, the rolling stock that will go through Cross River Rail is the same rolling stock that um, QR is already using. Um, so we're designing it um, to be an enhancement to the existing network. 
uh, we are adding a new signalling system. So ETCS level two will be um, in the tunnel as well. Um, and okay, so you're going to have to explain for the non-rail nerds what ETCS yeah. level two is. So it's um, European train control system. So effectively, it's a digital in-cabin system. So when you're on the train and you see um, a, a light on the side of the the road, uh, the rail where um, the driver will sort of see the different coloured lights to give them uh, indications when to stop and go and, and slow down. Um, in ETCS, that's actually all in the cabin. So it's it's been in operation in Europe for quite some time. Not so common here in in, um, in Australia and uh, certainly not at all on the Queensland rail network. So this will be the first time that that's been implemented because really in the tunnel you can't have line of sight signalling. So... Um, so uh, you need to have um, uh, a digital one in the, in the cabin. So that still requires a driver responding to those yeah. signals. It's not a it's yeah. not a, a it's driverless a system like we have on Sydney Metro. No, no, it's it still requires a driver, and and definitely does require a driver and guard as well. And so what that'll it'll mean though that is that the, rather than the driver looking outside the cabin for the signalling, it's actually on the inside of his cabin, but it's um or her cabin, and so it's it's a uh, it is a lot safer though as well. Um, it means that the signalling going back to the control centre, the, the train control centre has a better connection to the, the train. It also means that the, um, the, the train has some automatic shutoff. So the, the risk of a, um, of a, a train passing a, a signal by say driver error or mechanical error is significantly lessened because the digital system can inter intervene. It will give a warning and give further warning and then, then we'll stop the train. So it means you can actually run the trains a lot closer to each other on the network, which then means you can have high frequency service. So that, that's what that's all, all about. And ultimately that'll be rolled out across the wider Southeast Queensland network. Um, but Cross River Rail um, will be the first sector to get that signaling into it. So to come back to your sort of crossrail question, um, the 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 lessons out of there when I was over in uh, London in 2018, um, that was when they were starting to uh, get into a bit of strife there. And the one thing they kept talking about was allow enough time for system integration. Don't cut it short. And they crunched their time. They crunched their time. The civil works were done well. Everything was done well. And everybody was really happy. Um, but when they got to the system integration, um, they ran out of time. And well, I've been to Sydney recently, been to Melbourne recently and had exactly the same message from those guys. And they're, they're all saying, just plan ahead, get ahead. The other one is really getting good solid integration between your contracts and your contractors. So there's not scope gaps. Um, you you're all working off a single aligned program um, and everybody's got transparency around that program and making sure your interfaces are really um, clear. We're fortunate here that the same contractor is delivering our stations as, as is delivering the tunnels, um, whereas in Sydney, they've got challenges um, with greater interface with overstation development. So um, you know, there's certain benefits we've got, but there's also you know, the same challenges. We're certainly not uh, taking it lightly. It just strikes me as such, an, a, such a wide range of interface risks on the one project and you almost have to unbundle it and, and, and progress all of those different projects. How, how much are those sets of risks unique to each project? So when you went and spoke to the project teams in London or when you've done that in Sydney and in Melbourne, you know, are there templates to follow or, or is it really just the learning that you need a lot of time and you need to dedicate a lot of resource to it? 
Yeah, look, there, there's a lot of similarities between them, um, but each project mm. is different. So, um, you know, you you can take the the feed um, that really at, at my technical level they're getting is um, there's some things that are quite specific that they can pick up. The other is at a leadership level where you can set the right tone across contracts and across um, programs and project directors and get that alignment. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, contractors are wanting to make money. Um, governments are wanting to have projects delivered. Um, no one benefits if there's disputes. And so if there's some thinking you can do, the, the one thing you can't get back is time. So mm. the sooner we think about it, the sooner we communicate about it and we set up our systems to to have that dialogue. But but there are a lot of similarities between the projects, um, but each each has its own unique thing. But we've we've certainly learned a lot and really most appreciative of, of our um, colleagues in, in Melbourne and Sydney. They've been very generous. Um, Graham, you spoke about time and the thing you can't get back. Now, I'm a keen follower of your TBM tracker. Um, uh, TBM, Elsie's currently under, under, I guess, just past Kangaroo Point, just past River Terrace there. Uh, how yep. far? Uh, 720 metres travelled. Yep. Um, Merle, 235 metres. And um, Roadheader 1 and 2, less imaginatively named, I might say the, the road headers um, we tried to work out whether you you could name a road header but um i don't think people went for that one it's not quite got the same um appeal i guess um but just on the timing question is that like how fast do you expect your tbms to go are they ahead of schedule yeah. how does that work i mean it's great yeah. we can the, we can have yeah. a look at them here but like yeah. how does that mm. track against schedule yeah, um, we, we were fortunate. I mean, the, the teams worked really well and we got the TBMs um, in, both of them actually in, uh, you know, slightly ahead of program and um, they're, they're going quite well. I mean, you know, TBMs are complex beasts. Um, they t tend to do, on average, 20 um, metres a day, uh, on average. I mean, I was down there the other day and they, one of them had done 40 metres in a day, so they were, they were pretty happy with that progress. In Brisbane, um, it's all rock down there, so we don't have... Um, we don't have the sort of variability of uh, of um, you know subsoil and, and so forth. You know, I mean, I saw what they have in Perth at the challenges they've got over there, but even in Sydney around the harbour, uh, we've got rock, rock, and more rock, and some of it's hard, and some of it's really hard, and some of it's really really hard. Um, the, mm. the fortunate thing we've got is um, there's been a couple of road uh, tunnels built um, nearby and similar to our alignment. And then, of course, the footings under all the CBD towers are all founded on rock as well. So there's pretty good knowledge around the geotech. Um, probably the biggest challenge at the moment is the rock is really hard. And um, uh, and it, uh, it it's the bit that um, the roadheaders are, are biting up against in the... Um, in the caverns and they're, um, they've got their work cut out for them. But the, the TBMs can come right through uh, and, and interface with the caverns and just keep going. So we're, we're quite comfortable that they're heading in the right direction. So can you tell us what the inspiration for the names was? Yeah, so- um, I'm quite the, fond of those names elsewhere yeah. as well. <laughs> So um, uh, Merle and Elsie, so um, uh, Elsie uh, Shepherd uh, and Merle Thornton. So Elsie Shepherd was um, one of Queensland's first female um, engineers. She was a, a, a electrical engineer and she graduated from UQ. All the details are on our website, but um, wonderful woman. I've met her and she's come and spoke, spoken with our staff and uh, is a real inspiration. Um, and then uh, Merle Th Thornton um, was the, uh, the woman who 
chained herself to the Regatta Hotel um, bar, public bar, when women weren't allowed to drink beer in the bar, public bar and basically got Legend. the laws changed so that women could go <laughs> to public bars. So there you go. So um, both both really inspirational women. Um, I've spoken with both of them. They're, they're really lovely people and, and very proud um, and humbled to be um, to be part of the project. And great, to, a couple of, we call them groundbreaking Queenslanders, ironically. That's amazing. <laughs> It's great. Um, and it goes to a broader question. Janice and I have done mm. work together in the past on social license in mm. projects. Um, like, what, How have you built the social license? And talk us through the continuing nature yeah. of that need for social license for, for yeah. projects. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question in the regard to you don't start off with it. And in fact, when we started this project, there was we were in a real deficit because there was a lot of perception They'd been talked. The project had been talked about um, for for quite some time. Nobody actually believed the project was going to happen. Even when the government committed, um, there was the the political noise around it at the front end, which you're well aware of, Adrian, in relation to you know the funding from the federal government and and then the government, the Queensland government, going it alone, and that created a degree of um, sort of cynicism and scepticism around whether the project was going to happen. So, I mean, in my first year in this job, people were sort of going, yeah, yeah but it's never going to happen. Uh, I had to get out and go and spend a lot of time talking to the, um, to the construction sector to really f- fill people in on the intent and the government's intent and that we were deadly serious that we were going to get on with it. Um, really just getting on with it and then just persisting with the message, um, being realistic. You've got, you, you can't over-promise and under-deliver. You need to be um, really clear about what your message is and how you're going to, to do it. Give people um, an understanding of um, what the level of disruption is going to be, but what the uh, end game is looking like. What was interesting is early on we discovered that people weren't really interested in talking about the precinct benefits because if you don't believe the tunnel and railway station is ever going to happen, how can you be convinced that um, there's going to be precinct benefits? So we we dropped that as a messaging early on until we really got into the construction phase and then people suddenly turned their mind to saying, hang on a minute, there will be a station here. What does that mean? And that starts to enable the thinking um, for those next stages. So we've been chipping away for some time. We, we've evolved the message. Um, we've uh, Early on, the, the messaging has been very much about the sort of turn up and go, um, more jobs, those sorts of things. Um, you know, the, the more trains, more often. That, that's often used around the place. We, we use those messaging. We're now moving towards one, transforming the way you travel because we're, it's trying to make it more about that personal journey as to you go on the train and where you get off um, is going to be different to where you get off now or your purpose for travel will change. Or you, if you have never thought about using the train before, you'll think about it now because it's actually a better option. So that's, it's, it's, you've got to almost renew the message but also renew it with, um, with people's uh, acceptance of that future. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's not something... Uh, and you can burn social licence pretty quickly. I mean, we're at the moment in the middle of delivery and part of the, the TBM tracker is to sort of, you can't see a TBM, um, so how do people know where it's up to? Um, so we've got a lot of heavy effort on social media to sort of keep the message going out so people are aware of what's going on. And we learn also a lot of uh, from our, our counterparts interstate and where they're, where they're up to. Uh, but also just 
communicating heavily with the people who are in the impacted zones. And we've got, you know, uh, noise and dust is always an issue. Vehicles coming and going at night, sometimes contractors and subcontractors don't do the right things. It's how you respond to those things, get, you know, preempt them, but how you respond to them uh, that really matters to keep that social license. And with COVID, have you found any of that commitment has wavered? So where, what has happened um, to say public transport patronage mm. through the pandemic and yeah. um, how can you um, uh, make sure that coming out of the pandemic, the case is as strong for mm. continued public transport use? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's two elements to COVID. The, the, the front end is, is obviously um, the how we got on with the job. And what was interesting is um, Australia um, took a position, and you know, Adrian, you were heavily involved in this, um, as was I and our colleagues, took a position that construction um, and infrastructure was an essential service. And I'm, I'm really pleased um, with us as, a, as, a, um, as an industry, but also governments um, lap, you know, latching onto that and, and um, realising there was something that was important, keep people employed, keep these projects moving. They didn't do that in every other country. So I, I don't um, know that people realise how touch and go it was at one point and, and uh, ourselves alongside you and a lot of other people around the country in constant communication to to reassure our political leaders that you could continue to construct the biggest yeah. infrastructure investment in a generation and not yeah. pull the pin on it in a safe way with additional yeah. controls but but not stop mm -hmm. and i there was probably a 36 hour period in the middle of that i know it's back yeah. in late march mm. 2020 when mm. it was it yeah. was touch and go for a while it was a bit, it was a bit nervous mm. and when we were seeing it shut down in other countries um it was it didn't put it beyond um the realm but you know the contractual risk that sort of came with that but also the um the the loss of jobs you know there was just massive so the ability to sort of keep the mm. the momentum going i mean the line i argued pretty heavily is it's actually going onto a construction site is more controlled than going into a hospital um, you can't go onto a construction site without the right tickets, without the right guidance and without the right gear. And then on a construction site, you can up the ante on protection, um, face masks, uh, keeping people to particular zones, uh, timing of arrival, timing of departure, who touches what, um, all those sorts of things uh, are a lot more controlled on a construction site, usually in the, under the guise of safety, but um, in a health safety environment too. It just all, all worked out well. So, yeah, so I think, look, that that um, that was an important aspect of it in relation to the patronage. Um, I, I think there's a lot of close monitoring there at the moment. Um, we are seeing the sort of rebound in in um, public transport use at the moment. Um, I think we'll see you know changes in patterns of work. I think what we'll see mm. is uh, broader shoulders of peak rather than um, the sharp peaks that we've seen in the past. Graham Newton, the historian, uh, earlier in this conversation, told us you trace back the history of Cross River Rail to about 2007, about 14 years ago. Um, and you're, you're well underway now. So we'll discount it. We'll say about about 12 years between conception and, and beginning. Um, if we cast forward 12 years from now, as we are in April 2021, um, we should have just had an Olympics, a successful, hopefully, a successful uh, awarded and executed Olympics in Brisbane. Um, given the, the 12 to 14 year genesis of Cross River Rail, it strikes me that we probably need to be thinking about some of the infrastructure decisions mm -hmm. to support the Olympics 
should Brisbane be successful like, pretty soon. Um, I, I wonder if you could just talk us through like your experience with that idea of taking a project from conception to reality, just how long that takes and the, the, the challenges with making, uh, with getting things off a sort of an idea to a, an execution right. and just, <clears throat> I, I guess, just reinforce that need to start thinking about those decisions today. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it, the experience really is one where if there's a, if there's an actual um, target or an objective that you need to achieve, so um, whether it's a, a constraint in the network um, that's modelled, or whether it's um, an Olympics that are coming around the corner, or whether it's a reconstruction to get the state's economy back up and going, and you've got a three-year window to get it up, it's it, it's giving um, a, a sort of a, a time horizon which is. Um, which is achievable, realistic, but also has relevance that people can can buy into. So, um, the Olympics have, having an Olympic um, games, you know, and you've got to get your house in order. Um, and if you if you're having a party on on the weekend in three weeks' time, you sort of will mow the lawn and, and clean up the bathroom and get everything sorted. Well, in our case, we're, we're going to have a big party in twelve years' time, so we've got to get um, things sorted out. So, sorting out the the transport network, getting um, good systems where they work, where Brisbane Metro Cross River Rail, the other Queensland Rail assets, roads, um, you know, arterials, getting those things um, squared away, just the sort of fundamentals that we need to do. Then you've got the venues to get um, sorted out. Obviously, there's um, the Gabba that's being talked about. Brisbane Live at Roma Street is one that's um, being talked about as well as, a, as an indoor um, entertainment arena. Um, but from what we're looking at um, around our stations, we've got quite large potential property developments um, where you can create you know, good public realm, um, beautiful uh, spaces for people to, to um, you know, recreate at, but also bring um, town centres in. So things like Woolloongabba create a whole new town centre there, which adds energy to that place. Uh, Roma Street's got a lot of um, development there. I mean, we've demolished the transit centre, which is, will just change the whole face of Roma Street. And we've forecast in our um, precinct, uh, I suppose, strategy that there's sort of 12 to 15 years worth of development in each one of those sites. So that will go well beyond the Olympics. Um, and it, it really sort of sets, the, it's getting the house in order for the Olympics with venues and the, the public realm and then carrying that through in the post-Olympics um, legacy environment, which is going to be important. I mean, don't forget there's projects like Queen's Wharf um, are going to be coming online in the meantime and um, you know, other projects like the, the second runway have already been delivered and Howard Smith Wharf. So there's, there's a bunch of projects that have, have happened or are in the process of happening and all of that is part of getting the house in order. Um, and, uh, and you would hope that the big party of the Olympics really galvanizes everyone to work effectively together. Yeah, I like that idea of something being necessity driven, but there's also an opportunity with the Olympics. I think about 2025 as, as when your project opens 2032 yeah. and then the couple of preceding years around the Olympics and then the longer term yeah. over those horizons, that there's an opportunity actually to bring forward some of the benefits of the infrastructure that could be delivered to support the Olympics into the yeah. into the sort of I don't know sort of five to eight year window from now rather than the yeah. sort of decade to to twelve years. Brisbane Live is an example of that. Probably a, a um, an attachment to your project that maybe hasn't had the mm. the airtime that some of the other components have had. Perhaps you could just talk us through Brisbane Live location setup. Yeah. What, what what is envisaged there as it currently stands. 
Yeah, so um, so Brisbane Live, it's it's basically an indoor um, entertainment arena. So it's like Kudos Bank Arena or the Perth Arena. Um, so it's about an eighteen thousand seat um, arena, which you know would host concerts, um, basketball, um, you know, e games, those sorts of um, multi-purpose type venue. Um, you know, the the sort of concerts that would normally be held out of the Boondall Entertainment Centre, but um, really what we're seeing with these types of facilities is they're, they're tending to be more located um, closer to the CBD to make it part of the entertainment um, offering that cities offer. It's located directly adjacent to the Roma Street um, uh, station. Um, the idea is it would be built over the rail line, so not dissimilar to, say, Federation Square in, in Melbourne. Um, so there's a lot of challenges with that, though, when you start trying to build over rail. So it does make it an expensive op uh, proposition to... Um, to conceive and, and to build. So therefore, it'll require some pretty innovative um, engineering to drive the cost down. And I guess that's always been the challenge with Brisbane Live. Everybody loves it, but it's, it's an expensive option. Um, so if you've got an Olympics coming along uh, and you've got some interest from private sector investment and you've got the ability to think laterally around your engineering design, uh, we, we would hope you'd be able to drive the, the, the cost down, but also give that impetus to, to move on. I'm going to ask a deliberately provocative question, mm. if I may. Um, there has been, a, I guess, a perception over time from um, some parts of Australia that, that Brisbane's always been a one-project town. Um, and it is true now that there is one big dominant project in Brisbane when in some other jurisdictions there's sort of two or three big things happening at any one time. Um, Firstly, is that true? And and secondly, if to some extent it's true, to what extent has it driven sort of sequencing of projects, capacity to attract talent, um, brain drain versus attracting people back, uh, and what's the yeah. impact of that? Yeah, I look, I think um, there's possibly a bit of a perception um, about the, the nature of it, but what I would point out, there's about $30 billion worth of, projects actually going on in Brisbane at the moment. Um, there's quite you know large private sector project in the um, in the the project being done Queen's Wharf by Star um, and that's six hotels are being built um, at once. Um, it's quite a, an amazing project that's happening right in the core of the CBD. Obviously Brisbane Metro which is the, the council's um, uh, core um, you know public transport um, Project, which is we'll see, you know, new sort of bus type rolling stock come in, plus enhancements to, um, you, know, uh, you know, stations and things like that will will be part of that as well. The um, airport uh, has just been finished out of Brisbane, and it's um, it, it was a pretty major investment. And then we've seen other private sector investments. I um, mean, you've got Hurston Quarter happening, which is a, a research based facility out at um, out at the. Uh, uh, Royal Queensland Hospital. So there's there's a lot of sort of projects that are sort of humming away under the radar to some extent because they're not big grey infrastructure projects, but by um, in their own sector they're actually quite large and quite um, significant um, projects. Uh, you know, Sydney and Melbourne are doing a lot of um, rail and road tunnel type work. Um, we're doing less so of that because we we um, are not sort of at that sort of capacity constraint, if you like. Um, and that's why I guess Cross River Isle may well have that greater 
uh, perception in this sector, but I'd have to say across other sectors, we're actually seeing quite a lot of work happening. So well. you've, you've teed it up beautifully for my actual question, and, and I was yes. deliberately provocative in that one, which is there is a lot going on. There's a lot going on on the broader East Coast um, from an infrastructure and private sector, mm-hmm. uh, private project, real estate, commercial development perspective. Yeah. What's that doing to mm-hmm. skills, resources, yeah. the contracting sector, and how are you seeing yeah. that manifest in the, the work you're doing? Yeah, um, it's been an interesting um, one because what we actually found is a lot of people who were gaining or had gained a lot of infrastructure experience uh, interstate were really keen to move to come back to Brisbane. So a lot of Queenslanders who were doing almost like the the FIFO but into those capital cities um, jumped at the opportunity to come back. So it's presented that opportunity which... Um, you know, the, the boomerang workers who have got these sort of global experiences who just want to come back and live in their own hometown. That said, though, there are some other areas where there's some real challenges and, and right across the eastern seaboard, things like um, people with uh, signalling um, capability, people with system integration capability, they're really um, challenging to, to find and everybody wants them and everybody wants them at the same time. Um, but but it, it's been been a sort of a bit of a mixed mixed bag. But um, it's certainly one where uh, we haven't necessarily struggled. It's probably more people are picking and choosing where they would like to be. And we're fortunate. Um, there's a lot of Queenslanders with a lot of experience who who want to actually come back and and work in their own hometown. And the opportunity to work on a project like this that has significance in their own hometown, but also that it's not in some far flung mining community or something like that. Uh, is really appealing for them as well. Has the um, the closure of international borders and the, the mm. difficulty of getting people yeah. in has that had an impact, or can, are we discovering we can do a lot more stuff remotely? Yeah, look, I th- it's probably a combination of both. But um, we have found that if we're wanting to pick up people with you know specific technical experiences, so the signalling, um, the ETCS uh, experience because that hasn't had a lot of exposure in Australia before, you are actually reliant on either Australians who have worked overseas or overseas people who have knowledge uh, and they want to come and work here. Uh, That does have an impact on their ability to get into the country. What's been interesting is some of those people who have worked, you know, been global citizens, they've worked all over the place. COVID's made it it challenging for them to get their security clearances where they might have worked in a Middle Eastern country for some time and they've got to get... um, uh, information from that country's embassy or something like that, and it's just not as accessible in a COVID uh, environment. So it's a it's a sort of an interesting um, challenge that we've had. We had one guy worked remotely for for many months. By the time he got his um, his work visa, security clearances, just simply because of the logistics involved. It sounds as though there were both, um, you know, uh, challenges, but also benefits mm. during the COVID pandemic. Then, so did you find that there were aspects of the project? that were almost working at higher levels of productivity, mm. they had less interference from other users on the network and, and yeah. whatnot. So we, we've had both sort of, um, you know, um, technical and um, operational sort of um, opportunities mm. that have come out of COVID. Um, the, the operational sort of side of things, for example, when the border closed and the XPT train get, got kept on the New South Wales side of the border, it meant that we could actually get in to um, do the demolition uh, more efficiently at uh, Roma Street because we didn't have to um, relocate temporarily the XPT um, platform. So that just saved us a whole bunch of work. Um, there were other other opportunities that sort of came mm-hmm. through where um, you know, you're creating less disruption on the roads or when you, you're 
got your haul vehicles coming and, and going in the CBD, when the CBD shut down, it kind of made life a little bit easier. And we, are, we were able to get some more flexible working hours um, during uh, the, the COVID lockdown period, particularly last year. Um, mm. It has created some challenges in relation to um, you know, the technical skill. But what was interesting is the design teams gave feedback that they were, were more efficient in their productivity because they were able to concentrate on the task at hand. But generally, I'd say in a majority of cases in a project world, you kind of need that personal interaction because that's when the magic happens and that's when that's uh, those, those sort of uh, sidebar conversations or the you know someone wandering up to someone else um, in the workplace and just having a bit of a, a quiet chat with them about something or... Um, these projects are so built on relationships um, and trust that um, COVID did sort of create a bit of a barrier to that when we were in lockdown. And I think our, our return to work rate has been actually very high because people are um, much prefer that sort of interaction and that um, engagement with each other. On the skills piece, so if I think over the last 10 years, there's been a consistent conversation about skill shortages not not so much shortages of labor but specific highly skilled people in particular areas we're we're 10 years into i think what most people think is a 30-year cycle of of major infrastructure investment um I, i personally think it's deeply frustrating that 10 years into that we're still talking about needing people with 10 years of experience because we probably haven't capitalized on the opportunity uh, how, how do we not have the same conversation in 10 years' time that we still need people with 10 years' experience? I think that there's a sort of... The answer's kind of yes and no in relation to skill shortages. We, we've, we've never seen more people um, interested in um, STEM and engineering um, you know, type of uh, studies. We've never seen more opportunities um, for those people as well. What I'm excited about is the fact that... Um, Rail in in Australia for the first time in a very long time has had this resurgence of of knowledge and capability and enthusiasm to be part of it. You know, young engineers will graduate and want to get into rail because rail is probably second only to um, you know aviation as far as technology goes. And the stuff that we're seeing in the signalling is just it's next level because it's all safety based. Um, so I think it, it'll start becoming a more attractive career as opposed to seeing the, the demographic of people working in rail sort of heading towards the 50s and 60s in by average, whereas I think we'll see the younger engineers will really want to get involved in rail, rail tunnelling. You know, it's got all, it's got everything, tunnels, um, technology, um, design, it's got all sorts of things that why wouldn't you want to be involved in it? And I mm. think we'll, we'll see, we'll, so as far as skill shortage goes, it's a matter of how we grab those new entrants and uh, you know uh, get the, get their enthusiasm but get them up to speed Graham we've um, we've asked all of our guests on inside infrastructure the same question and season two is no different um, and the question is what's your favorite type of infrastructure and why my favorite type of infrastructure oh god it's hard um, I've, I'd have to say I do love a good tunnel. It's, um, I've been in, in tunnels all around the world. I've been on TBMs all around the world, and there's just something special about being, you know, 50 metres below ground, watching this machine beavering away, and, uh, and then when you walk out, you've got this perfectly, um, you know, circular, um, you know, uh, tunnel that you walk out of uh, out the back end there's something sort of special about that so, so, it's, I'd have to um, tunnel. is it tunnels under construction or is it like just tunnels yeah. when they're no, made tunnel, tunnels, under, 
tunnel's under construction. It just feels um, it, it's 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 progress in progress. It sort of shows mm. um, you, you can just feel you can feel uh, the the change that that it's creating. You know, for for millions of years that rock was lying undisturbed, and all of a sudden it's now going to have activity and people moving through it. So that's that's the uh, the inspiration for me. That was probably one of the most profound answers we've had. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was quite deep and moving. Um, I quite like that. I have a question. Can I throw a question in? This is a bit of a tabloid question. But, tabloid. Uh, yeah, but somebody in our Brisbane office um, recalled seeing uh, a picture um, back in 2011 of you next to the Premier and Prince Philip and the Queen. Did you get to meet Prince Philip? What was he like? How, how was that? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, the circumstance was um, when the Queen and Prince Philip came to visit um, Brisbane after the, the floods in, in 2011, um, and uh, the Premier and I um, sort of were um, involved, and they were on a, a boat, um, you know, quite a large boat, going down the Brisbane River, and uh, I had a short period in which I stood on the deck with the, the Queen and Prince Philip, and we... Um, uh, I explained, you know, the, the impact of the flood in Brisbane CBD, and um, as we sort of went along, everybody was on the side of the the, um, the riverbank waving at us, and it's uh, the the uh, it, it took a lot of um, willpower not to wave back. I knew that the, <laughs> you, have this, you have this feeling they're waving at you, but but actually they're not waving at you. But um, no, they, they were uh, they were actually really engaged and and very uh, very interested. But I have to say, it was um, one of the most surreal experiences on a. Um, Boat cruising imagine. down the Brisbane River with crowds waving at you. Um, it was it was a surreal experience, but it was it was. Um, I felt uh, very honoured to be asked to um, to be part of that and to, to meet the Queen and Prince Philip was um, in our own hometown uh, was was wonderful. I wish I'd seen the Newton version of the Royal Wave. <laughs> I looked for the photo and I couldn't find it. You have it? I, I can send it to you. This. Have you got it? Yeah, I do, please. Graham Newton, it's been a, a, a hugely enjoyable discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today. And um, thank you for, um, for being on Inside Infrastructure. Great. Thanks very much. Great to be part of it. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued collaboration on Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. If you have any suggestions, then please feel free to send us those, either to Janice or myself. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bierschen, Brendan Pierce and Michael Player.